The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and the Curse of Oak Island and many other things. Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily by the Green Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcast, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. Good evening. I hope everybody's well. Let's get into this ad read here. Three strangers moving in different directions find themselves in a small town in the middle of Ohio. A force reeling them in like a needle drawn on a compass to the north. Powerless to stray away from the impending convergence. They must take a stand in the battle versus good, or in the battle of good and evil. But what happens when the, the worst evil wears the face of good? Life of Blood is macabre tale of freedom, love, and being human. A must-read novel from Daniel Belts, coming out February 6th. He'll be on the, on the Mauer Report in February as well. So be looking forward to hearing more about that. My guest tonight is Dr. Gregory Sheehan. Sheehan, excuse me, is the leading of 40 in near-death experiences and afterlife across cultures through, throughout history. Gregory is the author of numerous books, but including the most recent one, The, the Next World of Ex- Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife. I'm not even going to read. You've got so many degrees here. They're listed for me to read to you, but I, I feel like <laughs> this. when I said he is the leading authority, he's got four or five degrees here. I'm just going to welcome you to the program. Greg, how are you? Gregory, how are you doing tonight? I, I am good, thanks, Jim. How are you? <laughs> thanks for having me on. Man, uh, where, where did you come up for air getting all these degrees? <laughs> well, yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> no, I've been lucky. I, you know, I, I've, I've kind of found um, this really interesting uh, area of research to pursue and just kind of you know, knuckled down and did it one, uh, one after another. <laughs> so. so I, I want to, I kind of, we've been going back and forth about the frame of the interview and how this all goes, but I want to make sure we talk about the first, the book first, and then we're going to obviously dive into all this content, the, the content and the subject matter. So tell me about the new, the next world, extraordinary experiences uh, of the afterlife. Let's get there first. Okay. Um, yeah. My first two books were, um, you know, heavy academic books and they were written um, for an academic audience published by um, Bloomsbury and then Oxford University Press. And even though I wrote them with regular readers in mind and and think and I think that anybody could read them, they're kind of marketed to academic audiences, which means uh, for, for the, the previous book, $110 price tag. So uh, I, um, you know, a lot of people are interested in near-death experiences and when people hear about that they ex- that there's historical and cross-cultural examples of them. They want to you know read more and, and learn about it. So I got tired of people saying, "Yeah, but you can't buy my book because it's 110 dollars." So I thought I'd write like a an accessible synthesis of it, um, looking at the the idea from all different kinds of cultures and religions and different kinds of um, histories around the world that was not only accessible to people as far as the the academic language and everything goes, but price wise as well. It's like an normally priced paperback so yeah just really kind of wanting to, to make it make my work accessible and get it out there a, a little to a wider audience so take take me back what started what started you down this whole journey to start with i you know i've always been um interested in unusual phenomena you know um i hesitate to use words like paranormal but whatever we want to call them um ever since i was a kid really i I'd had um i had a book called phenomena and it was it had rains of frogs and fishes and um, things like uh, somebody found a live frog in, inside of a lump of coal in England in 1742 and all this kind of stuff um, and for one thing the historical examples fascinated me most for, for whatever reason um, and then for another thing the um, supernatural stuff the, the life after death related stuff um, particularly did um, and even within that it was near death experiences that I, I when I first read about them I just I thought you know what <laughs> people um, are clinically dead for a while and then they come back and remember having these kinds of experiences it just kind of you know, it blew my my youthful mind um 
but then later on, you know, I, I didn't pursue it academically or professionally or anything. I just kind of lodged it away in the back of my mind. But when I was um, doing my first degree, which was a- actually in Egyptian archaeology, I was reading uh, afterlife texts like the Book of the Dead and the Coffin texts and Pyramid texts, and just started kind of noticing that there were a lot of similarities between what the ancient Egyptians believed happened in the afterlife and, and happened when somebody died and went there uh, in comparison to the near-death experience. So, for example, leaving the body, uh, entering darkness, coming out into a, a realm of light, meeting a being of light who assists you in your um, you know, evaluation of your previous life, um, even a, a strange kind of encounter with, with a person's own corpse, because uh, it was a sort of symbolic version of this in ancient Egypt where the dead person is associated with the god Osiris who's the god of the underworld and part of the afterlife journey involves encountering the corpse of Osiris in the other realm and that realization that um, that that corpse is basically one and the same as your dead body on earth is what enables the, the spirit to proceed into the next level of the afterlife um, and obviously the the being of light is the sun god ray. So it's all kind of symbolically expressed uh, themes of near-death experiences. At least that's how I um, kind of interpreted it at the time. So I've, I've got to ask this question because I'm morbid, I guess. So sure. the, the spirit has to uh, encounter the body. So we're leaving the bodies lay around so the spirit can find them? Yeah, so, um, you know, when when contemporary NDEs, the kind that, that you know most people are aware of, um, they people often describe that they raise, rise out of the body in the operating room after they've had a heart attack or, or in the street after they've been hit by a car or whatever. And they look down and they see their dead body lying there. And, and they think, well, they, they think two things. One of them is, um, you know, oh, my God, I'm outside of my body. Um, I must be still alive. But I've, I've survived the conscious or my consciousness has survived the death of my, my physical body. So there's that realization, which then, um, you know, allows them to accept the reality of, of what's happening to them. But then there's the other feeling of like, what is that horrid alien thing there? Um, I do not want to get back into it. And that kind of inspires them to, uh, you know, to, to proceed in, into whatever afterlife experience they're going to have. And uh, yeah, yeah. So, so that was kind of symbolically expressed in the ancient Egyptian texts, I think. It's fascinating to think about that they had a a mechanism to even describe that because we're having a hard time talking about it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I should, I should say that you know, on some level, this is my interpretation in light of near-death experience because the ancient Egyptians didn't have texts where they said, um, you know this guy Imhotep or whatever uh, died last week and he came back to life and this is what he told us. They, they just didn't use writing for like these kinds of personal narratives or journalism or whatever. So it, it's kind of speculative. Um, and partly because of that, I, I wanted to do a comparison of afterlife beliefs in different ancient civilizations. So uh, I compared ancient Egyptian to ancient India, Mesopotamia, uh, China, and Aztec and Mayan uh, Mesoamerican cultures. Um, so most of them actually had some kind of references to near-death experiences, showing that they at least knew about them. Uh, a few of them, especially China, um, there's one from Mesopotamia, uh, one from Mesoamerica. They actually had these kind of supposedly documentary accounts of NDEs, um, which kind of suggested to me that their afterlife beliefs were at least to some extent influenced by them, if not totally inspired by them. So, around the world, because you, like you said, you mentioned studying this, is it m- more acceptable, I guess, for the lack of a better word on my part, to have these experiences or talk about these experiences? I'm sure there are places that are very guarded and don't want to t- talk about that. For sure, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, America in the 20 and 20, 21st century is, is <laughs> one of them. I mean, Western contemporary society is is pretty, you know, has a, a real death phobia. People are, are weirded out by the subject still. Um, and a lot of people who have NDEs even now are afraid to talk about them because people are going to think that they're crazy or woo-woo New Age weirdos or, or whatever. Um, so they just keep it to themselves. Um, 
But yeah, I think in a lot of other cultures um, throughout history and even in modern times, near-death experiences are greeted in a much more um, open and accepting sort of way. And they're, they're, I wouldn't say they're normal. They're not a normalized thing. They're always seen as extraordinary and, and amazing and wonderful. Um, but they're uh, yeah, treated as a, as a uh, more positive sort of thing. And people are believed. I think that's the essential point to make that um, people would actually be believed when they came back and talked about these things. This is exactly what I was telling you about before we got on air. Germantown Runner has a question for me, which I didn't even cross my mind, but somehow he pulls one out that makes me look like an idiot, which <laughs> is fair. He's allowed to do that. He's good at it. Have you had a, a near-death experience or somebody close to you had a near-death experience? I haven't, no. Um, uh, no, and I don't even think anybody uh, close to me has. I, I've My dad had deathbed vision experience, and the distinction there is that the person who's um, dying sees visions of um, de deceased relatives or spirits or whatever coming to them. Um, he, he wasn't like in some other realm. Um, so that was that was an interesting and unusual experience because he had um, what they call terminal lucidity, where he was essentially um, in a coma for something like twelve days and he hadn't, you know, obviously been communicative. And and he suddenly sits up and, and sees his mother and says, Mama. And then he's talking about, um, you know, other uh, experiences that he had remembered in his life. He had been a musician, so he's remembering concerts that he played. Um, and, and this is all after, you know, you would not expect him to be able to, to come back and do this sort of thing. Um, but that was after I'd already started um, exploring this kind of stuff. So, so as far as a personal dimension goes, um, I guess there's not a, a major... Um, element of that other than uh, you know maybe a, a slightly odd preoccupation with <laughs> well trust with, me uh, I get it I get it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah the, uh, so. the questions that most people don't like to ask are the ones I love to ask so I get the, mm -hmm. the, the, the interesting uh, part of it yeah and a lot of people just think you know well, how can you um, study death all the time and isn't this morbid and depressing and to me it's not at all because it's not studying um, I don't know the the morphology of corpse decay. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's I was going to say there are a lot more death things that I could think of that would be less um, sunshine and rainbows. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and and to, and because of the fact that it's cross cultural, it's always you know kind of re inspiring my interest in it because there's always a new culture to learn about. Um, you know what they think about death and the afterlife and NDEs, and and because because of the fact that NDEs have been, it's almost like this hidden undercurrent throughout history um, because of that to, to try to find them and tease them out from these um, either ancient texts or anthropological texts is, is quite a challenge. Um, they weren't even named until 1975 with Raymond Moody. You know, he came up with a, the um, term near-death experience. And before that, um, most cultures didn't have any, any word for them. So it's just kind of searching out accounts of people who, who died and came back to life and searching for keywords in that way. Which has to be frustrating because I'm sure everybody has their own verbiage for that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and one account might say, uh, return to the body and the other one might say left the body or, or whatever. So even searching for, for keywords, um, can, can be pretty. Oh, still there because we got a loud yeah pop. okay we had a pop there i wasn't sure because sometimes you start hearing noises and well only bad things happen <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about this this re this research problem pr process not problem well i guess it is a problem but we kind of cleared it up how do you get your hands on the materials to even start thinking about doing all this stuff I'm, i know the internet's great but I th i'm sure it's only a small percentage yeah it really depends on um what the actual case is. So, for example, with the ancient Egyptian stuff, they, those texts have been translated and retranslated since the 19th century. So um, what I did with that, for example, is, is looking at the most recent translations um, and just isolating the parts of the text that talk specifically about um, dying and leaving the body and what happens afterwards. Uh, and I sort of did that with all the, with all the other ancient stuff. A lot of that was... Um, in some sense, uh, I wouldn't say easier, but fairly straightforward because just finding their, their beliefs in an afterlife and then um, is, is the main difficulty. And then once you've found that, just kind of teasing it out. But um, 
for the ancient Indian texts, it was difficult because there are references to near-death experiences in medical texts, for example. Um, in ancient China, there there's references in um, like historical documentary texts that are had political purposes. Like they would say that this particular general um, died and went to the other world, and he met uh, you know the the um, Sheng Di, the the creator of heaven, and this deity basically sanctioned his rule back on earth. So they would use it for these kind of uh, political purposes. So finding um, the text in all these different areas can be a little difficult. But but fortunately, um, you know, if you search hard, hard enough, you'll find um, academic texts, um, you know, articles of people who have kind of been there before. They might not have talked about them in terms of near-death near death experience, but like, you know, in... in um, Chinese studies, for example, they will say return from death experiences, which is you know essentially the same thing. Oh, well, it's close and enough that there, you could figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, and then from there, it's just a matter of looking at their sources and seeing if there are translations and, and hunting those down. And um, and that's the, that's part of the difficulty is there's there's I'm sure tons and tons of stuff out there that hasn't been translated. So um, with all the NDEs around the world that I have found. I don't even want to think about how many more um, I haven't just from not having the, you know, not being able to speak 15 or 20 languages. Well, that's going to be frustrating. No, you'll get there. <laughs> no, but you, you mentioned the indigenous and I'm thinking about all the tribes from, from Maine down to Florida and, you know, right. they spread out across the West and they're different. I mean, wildly different beliefs and mm -hmm. their lack of, um, well, I'll say it this way, the promotion of oral Storytelling, the handing down of stories orally. So I right. can't imagine how much stuff just was lost that way. And then what you're trying yeah, to find is kind of would be the last thing they'd write down, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, well, that's where the, the fortunate but also unfortunate thing of, um, of missionaries comes in because missionaries did, um, you know, as probably everybody knows, they didn't do a lot of good for the Native American population, for example. Um, and neither did did the um, explorers who or the explorers who came in, um, but because part of their agenda was to convert um, Native American peoples, they needed to understand what their afterlife beliefs were. So, um, you know, despite what they thought about them, they in a lot of cases actually did record um, examples of um, you know Native American afterlife beliefs, and often this included the Native American people saying. Um, so, the, so the missionary would say, you know, what do you believe about the afterlife? And they would give a whole description of it. And then the missionary would say, and and how did you come across this um, ridiculous information? Because they were always, you know, very um, hostile and critical to them. And the Native Americans would say, um, this particular person three years ago died on this date and came back to life and told us. And that's exactly how we know. So um, what's interesting about that is that even though the missionaries were, were trying to use their information against them, it often worked; it had the opposite effect. And the Native Americans would say, um, we actually don't believe your description of hell because our people have been there and we have firsthand experience of it. So what you're telling us is some guy who lived how many tens of thousands mi miles away in a culture that we know nothing about, um, and you're trying to, to tell us that that's more has more, more bearing on reality than our beliefs. So it was this um, prioritizing of personal experience within their culture over the, um, you know, foreign Christian ideas, which I, I think is really interesting. I'm just sitting here fascinated by the thoughts of trying to do that, convert. Mm -hmm. I mean, just anybody who has never, I mean, who's lived in a bubble, for the lack of a better explanation for the time period we have here, somebody new comes in and tells them they're, whatever they're doing is wrong, but they have yeah. no context to base their decision off what's worked for them for the last thousands of years and some guy comes in and says you know you're not doing that right you're not believing right which is even harder for me to believe yeah it's just <laughs> yeah and especially when like i said they, they've got um people who actually say that that they went there and and the people who are alive who are around them saw that person apparently die um and then saw them come back to life which in itself is going to be a miracle so obviously they're going to listen to that person and, and take seriously what they say because you know, coming back to life isn't a, isn't a daily occurrence. And then some, you know, angry foreign missionary comes ridiculing them and, and uh, you know, saying this is preposterous. Um, so, yeah, they, it took a while for for them to, you know, embrace Christianity. And 
you know, many still haven't. And this German town runner, he's on fire tonight. We're going to watch out for him. Um, are, <laughs> are there claims from other cultures or our culture for those who have experienced the near-death experience and gained skills like a language, um, musicality? I think I said that right. The ability to play music or other strange knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that's really a cross-cultural um, phenomenon. Um, in fact, there was a, um, an interesting one from medieval Europe. Uh, I think it was English, may have been French. Sorry, I have tons of these in my head. Uh, but this guy, um, a medieval monk, died and came back to life and claimed that he had the ability of omnilingualism, which is the ability to speak all languages. And um, he didn't speak any foreign languages when he died. And, um, so that's interesting. But then in a lot of uh, Native American examples, um, and also in the Pacific and African societies, uh, they often will come back with some kind of medicinal knowledge, like uh, you need this particular kind of herb to crush up in order to fix the illness that you died of or to um, help the plague that's uh, that's currently uh, decimating your people or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's often some kind of new knowledge or some kind of new ritual. The um, the ghost dance is a, a lot of people have heard of this. It's a Native American um, ritual dance that people did to kind of um, commune with spirits in the other world. That was a supposedly learned by somebody in a near-death experience, or actually a, a few different Native Americans had uh, near-death experiences and brought back very similar types of um, ritual dances. And that was intended basically for them to uh, to bring on the experience in anybody. So it was, you know, democratizing the afterlife. Whoever wanted to do this dance, which involves sometimes um, drug use or or dancing to the point of exhaustion and, and you collapse with the idea in your mind that you're going to have an NDE-like experience, um, it would kind of, you know, they bring it about in that way. So it's kind of like making NDEs available to everybody without um, having to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about the slut lodge phenomenon where they put you in a tent or somewhere and you just crank up that fire until you start seeing things, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's actually, you know, going back to the idea about some cultures not being friendly to NDEs, there's a really inter interesting contrast between a lot of the Native American cultures and a lot of the African cultures. Um, because with Native Americans, like you said, they had things like the sweat lodge and vision quest. They had... Um, different religions that were based on dreams and all kinds, they were really open and interested in these kind of phenomena of, of um, other world journeys. And um, a lot of their shamanism was focused on the shaman sending their soul out of the body to the other world to, to rescue somebody who was dying. So they would send their soul after the soul of somebody else. Um, so they were, they were open to it. So when NDEs came along, um, they would be, you know, uh, pretty friendly to the person who had it and they would listen to what they had to say. But there's a really interesting contrast in a lot of um, African societies where their religion and their, their beliefs and practices were a lot more focused on uh, ancestor spirits who remained on earth and they would live, you know, in the woods or in a river or whatever, um, these kind of animistic spirits. And they, sometimes they get angry and, you know, cause mischief and, and it could be malevolent or they could, could be benevolent. Um, so the kind of religion was built around uh, placating these spirits or or uh, keeping them at bay, depending on the on the situation. So because of that, um, there there grew a fear that um, there was a lot of fears of, of sorcery and witchcraft. So if somebody came back to life, they would think that that person not not that they came back to life, but they'd been possessed. Um, either by an evil spirit, an ancestor spirit, or that they were a victim of sorcery or, or witchcraft, that some kind of um, witch or sorcerer had actually turned them into a zombie, effectively. So instead of, you know, rushing to their side and saying, you know, oh, Auntie Margie, I'm, I'm so happy to see you, you came back, um, they would start throwing rocks at them and, and you know, try to drive them away or, or even kill them. And that's reflected even in their, their funerary practices. They would often... Uh, bind corpses hand and feet and then um, pile rocks on top of the grave and just basically prevent them from coming back in the first place. And that's why there are very few um, examples of, of near-death experience accounts from, from these African societies. And that's going back to, you know, I went back to 16th century or something up, up until the 
forties or fifties. I'm sitting here thinking that's fascinating. You you have in your death experience, you you wake up, you're happy to be alive, and then there are people trying to kill you. Yeah, but that even that um, is such a different cultural thing because there are examples of um, African people who had near death experiences came back to life and then asked to be killed again. Essentially, uh, there was a woman who was a victim of human sacrifice in a society called the Akrapong people. And she came back and said, um, I went to the other world and I met this council of gods and they said, uh, you're naked. What are you doing? You're naked. This is, you know, disrespectful. Um, so she said they sent me back in order to get some clothes on to, to you know, properly present myself to them. And, and so they said, okay. And they brought her some clothes and she got dressed and she's like, okay, I'm ready now. And they, they you know, quote unquote, killed her again. So it was a very different attitude towards uh, towards death in the afterlife um, I, the, than, than what we have. I'll be the ignorant one at this moment. I'll, this does not reflect your opinion at all, but can you imagine sending your guards out to kill somebody and then they come back in and be like, tell you this story? You know, they expected you to be dead and then they come in and tell you this story and then you have to send them back out there to finish the job? I know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, that what's interesting about this is um, that those kinds of beliefs and attitudes they withheld even through Christian conversion. There were some examples from eighties or early two thousands, even I can't remember. Um, but a couple examples of in the Congo of people who came back to life and these, you know, modernized societies, essentially um, who came back to life and all of the relatives at the deathbed just fled um, in fear. And it took the person, the NDE or a little while to convince them like, no, it's actually me. <laughs> Um, and fortunately, you know, the, it's, it's, you know, modern times and nothing happened to them. They eventually did listen, but the initial impulse was, you know, to get the hell away from there. Um, even, and then when they listen to the person's NDE, it's very similar to, you know, different ones in different societies. So the, the actual experience the person's having doesn't really reflect necessarily on, um, how the culture reacts to it. This is a speculative question from Germantown Runner, which I found, I did He's like I said, he's on fire tonight. He should be the one hosting the show tonight, apparently. Um, <laughs> since NDAs are always unexplained, can future terminal technology be planned for like cryogenics for a form of near-death experience? Like I wow. can't imagine giving yourself a near-death experience on purpose, but I guess well, technology is probably going to get there. Yeah, I actually wouldn't be surprised if people do it already. Um, and, <laughs> and people do say that like um, ketamine and DMT drug experiences um, and ayahuasca too, that they um, are very similar to near-death experiences. Um, some of the examples of NDEs I've found in, in some of the indigenous cultures might have actually been um, the, the shamanic types of experiences. They might actually have been real NDEs because they would say things like, um, you know, they would take so many drugs of, of whatever type of drug it was that they would um, pass out dead and everybody around them would think that they were dead and they'd, then they'd come back to life. Um, and, and sometimes they would even say um, I, that the shaman burned himself to death or clubbed himself to death. So, um, you know, our, our definition of death might be different for one thing. <laughs> uh, but, but another thing is, uh, I, I, even though there's no way of, of being able to determine you know how dead people in the past might have been in these experiences i think if if somebody's clubbing themselves senseless to the point that everybody around them thinks is dead we could probably kind of consider that uh, an nde i was gonna say so, i mean it's a sliding scale right because the ability to medically bring them back is far different too yeah absolutely so and and which made have made of uh, might have made them seem even more um kind of miraculous before there was um you know, good medical technology. Um, but yeah, I mean, I there's also um, attempts at making uh, virtual reality NDEs. A couple of people have done like, you know, you put on the VR glasses and, and you have this 3D NDE. But, but as far as, um, you know, uh, a mainstream thing of people, of doctors medically inducing them, um, yeah, I don't know. I, that would be a diff, difficult ethics thing for them to get around, I think, unless they could prove that there was no physical danger to the person. And even then, you know, the way drugs are regulated, it seems like something like that would be fairly regulated. And then the horrible follow-up question, would you have one if we got to the point where you could safely, medically? Uh, 
you know, I, I probably would if it was if it was safe, but um, there would be a big part of me thinking, I know this is artificially induced, and therefore I don't know if this is a real experience or if it's more like just a drug experience. And, and that's where I have a little bit of um, skepticism about about the drug experience and DE equation, um, because just because a ketamine trip or whatever can can be very similar to an NDE, it doesn't mean that it's actually uh, fundamentally the same thing or even anything like it. Ooh, that's a deep, that's a deep point there because yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've all, well, I guess we all, I can't say that several of us, is that fair? Um, have had those drunken visions, right? Where we've had a little too much to drink and right. So, which we yeah, normally I, don't have I've done. Yeah. I've, I've done, you know, psilocybin and, psychedelics in, in the past, you know, when I was younger. And there was, even if I was seeing, I don't know, whatever, God in the moon, um, <laughs> part of me knew that, you know, no, I'm just tripping. <laughs> and and I knew that it wasn't really real. So I think if, um, in contrast, if I, if I had an NDE and I saw my body lying there and I was outside my body and had some kind of genuinely evidential thing, I think that would be a very different prospect than knowing that I had taken a drug, I think. But so, then again, people who take especially ayahuasca, they're absolutely convinced that these entities they encounter or whatever were, were 100% real. Shifting Gears brought to you by evergreenpodcast.com. Shifting Gears brought to you by evergreenpodcast.com. So you've been researching this for a long time and you've covered the world in these different beliefs. How has it changed you personally? Um, I'm not totally sure that it has all that much. Um, I, I think it's made me realize what I already knew, which is that there's a lot of things I don't know. <laughs> and that um, I don't think that, um, for one thing, I don't think anybody, even people who have NDEs and come back and tell you what it's like to die, I don't think anybody knows exactly what it's like for you to die or for me to die. I think everybody's going to have a somewhat different experience, partly depending on your culture and your individuality or whatever. Um, it hasn't really convinced me that there's an afterlife, but it definitely hasn't convinced me that there's not. Um, so I, I guess I just kind of, I got to a point where um, I'm, I'm okay with that ambivalence and just kind of thinking I'll, I'll find out when the time comes. <laughs> What yeah? You know, what, what is actually going to happen? Well, when the time well, you're going to have to communicate. We'll have to figure this out. Um, yeah, yeah, which is a whole other area of afterlife stuff. Yeah, I was going to say that's a whole fun can of worms too. But uh, is there a a commonality between all these different visions of what people are seeing in the afterlife? Because you know we we all have the again the rainbows and unicorns vision of the good side of the afterlife and the fiery pits of hell, I'll say it, right? But is there, is that common or is that just the Christian coming out in me? Um, As far as that's, it's really interesting actually, because as far as um, near death experiences go, um, there are negative distressing NDEs that that people have, but they're pretty rare. Um, They're they're I can't remember the percentage, but it's, it's tiny, less than 1%. Um, and when people do have them, uh, they seem to often be one of two things. One is that they're very confusional and that they're very like, unlike regular NDEs. So they just say, you know, it was just blackness and, and I felt like there was figures dragging me down and, um, and they don't wake up with this kind of clarity and it doesn't stay with them for the rest of their lives and change their lives and, and all these other things that, um, regular NDEs do. I'll just say, I'm um, just going to interrupt you there for a minute because I would have thought that number sure. would have much higher. 50-50 even, you know, I had this no. vision of burning in the pit and say, you know, I better get my, my shit together and turn my life around. Yeah, it's not that. I mean, there are, you know, evangelical Christian NDE studies that, that say that they're higher. Maybe it's 2%, I don't know. Oh, oh, well, um, <laughs> you're still not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there's it's still not, not very high. Um, and then some of them seem to be very similar to the the, you know, traditional NDE or whatever you want to call them. Um, but they're experienced in, in a negative way. So they'll see a, 
they'll go through through darkness and they'll see it as threatening and they'll meet a being of light and think that it's oppressive um, and the whole thing is just they're they're terrified but it's still basically the same types of experiences um, but as far as actual beliefs around the world goes um, most so Okay. Um, yeah, most cultures around the world do have some kind of judgment or negative and positive afterlife beliefs. But what I, I think um, is the case is that, at least I observe this in China and India and uh, Egypt, that the more um, religion in general, but afterlife beliefs in particular, become sort of popularized and dissemin disseminated through society and, and less particularly for the the elite you know the kings and the priests um the more they become uh kind of manipulated it seems like there's more emphasis on hell and punishments and and this binary good evil uh kind of behavior and afterlife thing whereas in earlier times it's um it's a lot less of that so what i think was going on was a very uh, a tool of social control really that that the more uh, people were able to control other people with this uh, promise of heaven and the threat of hell, the more they exploited it. And so the, the descriptions of, you know, being boiled in a pot or having your fingernails taken out or whatever um, become almost almost lovingly <laughs> described in uh, in some of these uh, later Chinese and Indian and, and Egyptian texts when they just didn't really exist earlier on. And I think that's, you know, probably what's going on with, with Christianity, too. Um, interesting thing about Christianity is it's it's a religion that's based on the death and return of you know one particular person, but there aren't really that many NDEs coming out of Christianity. There's there's none in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, which um, I find surprising. And I think that's also um, a political kind of official Orthodox theology thing that the the staple of Christianity is the way to heaven and the way to God is through Christ and only through Christ. So if they were to say, um, popularize the idea that people have near-death experiences, then people would be saying, wait, you mean I can get there without Christ? I can get there by dying myself? Everybody can be Christ and die in return? So um, I think that's uh, also a, a, a some some kind of a you know manipulation of, of what may or may not have happened. Circling back to our previous question about doing it on purpose, I mean, I guess that would become a major problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Could... Oh, boy. Um, so you, you, what about East versus West? Because we, you know, the, the, the Buddhism and that versus, well, we've kind of hashed on Christianity, but what about Buddhism and that, that, how does that work with all this? Yeah, that's, um, there are a few things. So going back to the idea of what's similar across cultures, so just very generally, like, leaving the body, obviously, is, is cross-culturally universal, because otherwise there wouldn't be anybody to tell us about their NDEs. Um, leaving the body, entering darkness, light, and encountering some kind of spirit beings, and then being told to return and returning to the body. Those are kind of the main general themes. But then within that, um, there are a lot of differences. And so one of them, for example, is the near-death experiences um, you might be familiar with. Somebody is told, um, no, you need to go back to your body because uh, you need to take care of your children or you need to um, fulfill some you know, work that you were doing on, on Earth or you need to change to become a better person. There's always some kind of you know, developmental or educational um, motivation for it. But in a lot of other societies, in um, China, for example, and some small-scale societies, sometimes in India, um, the reason they're sent back is because it was a case of mistaken identity, basically. So they'd say, you know, we got the wrong Jim Malliard. Um, we want the one who, who lives, um, you know, outside of London or whatever. So they would send you back to your body, and they'd, they'd go and, and grab the other one. Clerical errors, that's always good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... So obviously being sent back to the body and returning to the body is, is the same, but the reason for it, you know, seems to be, depend on culture. Um, and then another very uh, interesting cultural difference is a, a lot of small scale tribal societies, 
they describe walking along a road to the other world, and they'll even say, you know, as I was walking along the path, I saw other footprints of, of the hundreds of souls that had walked to the other world before me. Very rarely do they say they, they went rushing through a tunnel in darkness. So, but the, obviously the theme is the same. They're, they're going from one place, you know, an earthly realm in the spirit form to get to another part of the afterlife realm. So yeah, there's there's certain things that seem to be determined by by culture and religion and, and belief, but then certain things, more general things that aren't. And it's unpacking all that and trying to trying to find out what um, what everybody has and what everybody hasn't is is uh, I think at this point not going to happen because there's so much diversity between them, um, and that's one of the things, the things that makes them both fascinating but frustrating. Because from the earliest times of, of NDE studies in the 70s, they were, even Raymond Moody's first book, he's trying to figure out what is universal about NDEs. And he was looking at, you know, an example from ancient Greece and a, a couple medieval ones, and um, nobody's been able to, to figure that out. And I just think it's, um, it's not going to happen because there's all these different elements that each different person draws upon. So they're similar, but they're different. Even docu- um, even documenting the current day beliefs would be difficult, let alone historically. Yeah, absolutely. Which, and then and then document, documenting um, you know subjective personal experiences is, is even more complicated <laughs> because so, we also don't know when somebody comes back from an NDE. Um, uh, you know, they often will say, "Oh, it all happened at once," or it was. It's difficult to explain, but then they explain it, and in the explaining of it they kind of create a, a narrative which may not have happened in the order that they said, or they might be using symbols or imagery to explain something that's, that's unexplainable. So it's, um, it's, it's a difficult thing to unpack. Just like my wife, she'll tell me something that's in a certain color. I'll be like, put it in the eight crayon box for me. So <laughs> yeah. I can understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We all perceive things totally differently when we're in our bodies. So. Yeah. <laughs> And she doesn't like me when I do that. You mean red? No, I mean maroon. No, red. No. <laughs> um, I guess this probably has some. Maybe this is a not in your pay grade or in your realm of study. But I'm sitting here thinking about because you know I kicked around the idea of being cremated. Of course, now you're telling me about all these people coming back to their body, mm. right? And now I'm re- fic- revisiting this whole notion in my head while you're talking about all of this because yeah. If, if I uh, uh, ash myself, um, there'll be no body for me to come back to. So how does that, is that, that's got to play a factor in some of these burial traditions around the world, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, in, in societies that are more open to NDEs and they, and they know about them and they kind of accept them as, as part of their beliefs, um, their burial practices involve not burying the body for, you know, five or six days or seven days, depending on, um, I guess the climate, you know, like how quickly a, a, a corpse would, would um, decay in whatever climate they're in. Um, but the point being that um, they give the person ample time to return to the body. And, and it's only when the corpse is basically beyond the, the, the state of being able to, to, house, <laughs> to house a person in it, um, that only then would they, would they bury it or cremate it. But don't, so, the Ju- don't the Jewish people bury people by the sunrise of the next or the sunset of the next day? Yeah, so so there, and and you know there aren't very many NDEs known from Judaism, and they're they don't appear in the Hebrew Bible. The only time they crop up is in mystical Kabbalah traditions, and even there, they're often you know a little bit vague as, as to whether it's an NDE or or mysticism. So yeah, that's and that's uh, there's a real correlation between burial practices and you know the existence of reports of NDEs in different cultures. Why? Now that I've said it out loud, of course there is, but <laughs> these things that <laughs> rattle through my mind backwards and slowly. Um, yeah. So if you wait long enough, you know, if you make sure that enough time has passed, um, you're probably safe being cremated. But um, you know, in Victorian times, they were they had that that fear, and they had um, these uh, a string leading into the coffin attached to a bell in case they woke up after being buried. Which is, I- um, you know, Maybe I, should, maybe I should get a bell and be cremated. That'd just be fun. <laughs> yeah, just to be, be just just to make people wonder. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so you, you've been doing this research for years. Is there one particular thing that you just, anytime you talk about this stuff that never gets brought up, but you just always love talking about? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, no, I guess, you know, one of the things, um, I guess partly what, what got me interested in this in the first place was the similarities between the ancient afterlife beliefs and NDEs. And I was kind of looking at this idea of, of cross-cultural similarity in all these different cultures. And um, that's what my first book was, which was called um, Conceptions of the Afterlife in Early Civilizations. Um, and it's actually going to be called Near-Death Experience in Ancient Civilizations. So um, in a couple of years, it's going to be reissued. But basically, um, so that was interesting. And, and, I, and that was, a, you know, I enjoyed doing that research. But it was really later that the, that the differences stood out to me more and, and started um, just kind of, in a way, capturing my imagination more, as well as the, the more kind of, I mean, what I've been talking about so far is, is all pretty... Um, you know, cultural history of religions kind of stuff. But as far as like going into the psychical research and, and parapsychology stuff, um, you know, what are the implications for all this stuff on on that side of things? You know, what what does it mean for the idea that near-death experiences are actual experiences of an afterlife? And at the same time, what does it mean for um, claims that they're just the dying brain and, you know, a burst of energy activity at the end of, of life or whatever? Um, and I think, um, because basically my, I think my research can be used to support either kind of theory, but in some ways, um, it's a real challenge to the, to the materialist theories, to the idea that it's just the dying brain. Um, for example, there was a recent study, um, a couple of recent studies, there was, um, that they detected that rats when they're dying have this burst of brain activity at the last few moments of death. And then they observed that in a human. They were able to, in, in just last year, they they um, monitored a, a, a person who was dying and, and confirmed that there's this huge burst of brain activity right when somebody dies. And so they said, so that probably explains the life review um, element of an NDE. And, and there are all these you know, overblown reports in the media that NDEs have been explained by physical science. Um, but the issue there is that they're only looking at the popular conception, the Western popular conception of Western NDEs. They're not taking into account the fact that life reviews are completely, practically unknown in a lot of the small-scale societies, and they're actually quite rare, even in the West. So they've taken this like stereotype general generality that you'd see in in a movie, and they've said, "Oh, that explains this one element." When that element is um, isn't universal in itself. So, so in other words, they're they're saying um, a universal brain-based function um, explains this universal near-death experience thing, but the, the near-death near-death experience thing isn't universal to begin with. Well, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so you have your your replay of life version of a near-death experience or your death experience, if you were, versus the people that visit the afterlife. Well, that's two different trains on two different tracks. Right. And if the person comes back and has one without the other, either or, that still doesn't explain yeah. the one. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you can't. So, any kind of physiological explanation that they've so far come up with um, isn't isn't holding water. I'm not saying that they won't come up with one that does, but uh, but so far um, they haven't. But then, you know, by the same token, you could say that the um, similarities that do exist um, cross-culturally show that it's some kind of maybe cognitive function of the brain, maybe not a, a totally physical thing, but just the way our, our cognitive mechanisms work, and that then it's overlaid with you know the, the particular cultural stuff. Like there's a um, neuroscientist researcher, um, Jesse Baring, who demonstrated that... Um, very very young children who basically had no religion and this is in the west in in england and in america um that they intuitively believed in an afterlife even before they had even been taught about it they, they, they would give them a puppet show where where a lizard puppet is killed by another puppet and they'd say what happened to that puppet and none of them would just say oh he's dead and, and in the ground they'd say um he went to see his 
his mother or, you know, whatever. They would make up some scenario um, to show that that puppet somehow had an afterlife. So for whatever reason, we seem to be intuitively, you know, we're hardwired to believe in an afterlife, which is um, in itself pretty interesting. I was going to say, of all the things you've said tonight, I think that one, maybe, <laughs> I don't want to downplay the rest of it, but we're 15 minutes in, and that's kind of the first time you've kind of left me go, oh, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so so then if we're if we're primed to believe in an afterlife, then when people have NDEs and come back, we're sort of primed to accept what they say about it and, and accept that what they said, um, you know, really was an experience of an afterlife. Which and the same goes with, you know, mediumship stuff and reincarnation, um, which I also talk about in the new book. Um, it's, it's a similar kind of, um, you know, there, there's an intuitive thing to be open about it. And, and even skeptical scientists, they wouldn't be researching it and trying to disprove it if they weren't interested in it. So, yeah, you've got to believe enough to, to want to disprove it that there's something there because you're trying to disprove it, which is always fascinating right, yeah. to me. What also makes me wonder what children know or believe or however you want to frame that, that we kind of um, learn out of them by teaching them all mm. with stuff we know. Yeah. Yeah, and especially, I mean, there's a lot of cases of, you probably have um, knowledge of some of these uh, children who remember past lives who, um, you know, from the age of two or even younger, they start saying, I want to go see my, my other mommy in, in this other country or other city or whatever. Um, and these have been investigated by psychiatrists and other types of investigators. And some of them have been able to match up the personality that the kid is talking about, you know, their past personality to an actual person who, who um, historically lived. And the, the kid will be able to give directions to the house and talk about um, you know, they'll, they'll meet uh, relations that they used to have, relatives, and know about their work and how the person died and, and all this other stuff. And that's really difficult to explain in, um, you know, in scientific terms. Either it's being made up or there really is reincarnation or the kid is picking up some kind of, you know, psychic consciousness residue out in the universe that's totally unexplainable. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's unusual stuff. And, and, and to my mind, hasn't been, again, totally proven or totally disproven. It's fascinating stuff. So, okay. What advice would you give somebody who is headed down a spiritual, I'll just keep it broad, based of research? Uh, I would say <laughs> a couple things. I guess it depends on, you know, if they're, if they're within a, a university kind of setting. Um, if they're if they're doing it through a formal education, I would say depending on what kind of department you're in, think about doing something else first until you get your tenured post in a university. <laughs> if you um, are trying to apply um, for a, a university lectureship or something, and you have near death experience and mediumship and spiritualism <laughs> and stuff like appearing that, appearing on the Mauer Report, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, it might not do you any favors. So, um, so yeah, I would say consider um, being firmly into the mainstream first before you embark on it. But if you don't care about those things, then I would say, nevertheless, do it through um, mainstream education uh, through a university so you can get that critical thinking um, that I think is, is difficult to... Um, develop outside of the university context and also the you know just the basic research methods of, of finding your sources and analyzing them and and all these kinds of things that um that higher education does well they don't do everything well but um, but training and basic research and, and critical thinking i think are are important things wait just a minute here youtube and <laughs> wikipedia are not critical thinking and not good sources for research Especially not Wikipedia, no. I am <laughs> wildly disappointed. Wikipedia bias against anything like this. Um, <laughs> there was a reference to to me in their, their article about um, afterlife beliefs around the world or something. And some Wikipedia editor went in there and changed historian of religions, Gregory Shushan, they changed it to parapsychologist because <laughs> apparently they thought that would be more demeaning and, uh, and my you know what I'm saying would be less... Uh, taken less seriously than if I have a real PhD from a real university. So. Oh, 
Which you do. Like I said, I, I refuse to read that whole list because we would still be probably reading it. Uh, okay, maybe it's not quite that wrong, but it's, it's impressive, which is why I'm, yeah. I'm thrilled to have you here. Okay, so we've got four minutes left, so we kind of... First, where can people find you? And then we'll lighten it up because I've got a few little fun questions for you. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm I'm all over the social medias. <laughs> Gregory Shushan. I have a website, gregoryshushan.com. Um, I should also mention, actually, people might be interested. Um, there's a publisher in the UK called White Crow Books, and they published all kinds of things on life after death and these kinds of areas. And I've started my own uh, imprint with them called Afterworlds Press. And in that, I'm publishing books by various other authors and kind of resurrecting a lot of books that... Um, you know, haven't haven't been um, seen since they were went out of print in the fifties or whatever. Uh, so, um, there's one example. There's a, a book about uh, Native American afterlife beliefs written by a Swedish scholar, which is is great. And it was only published in this small press edition in 1957, and and now people can just you know buy it online on Amazon. Um, well, and there's you... also a, a great one that we just um, published. Uh, you, you probably know the Parapsychology Foundation and the, the medium Eileen Garrett, really famous medium, yeah. and she uh, uh, she kept getting these um, you know channelings and and uh, communications from this entity throughout her life, who told her that his name was Lucifer, and she uh, wrote down all of these communications from him, and and also wrote a kind of psychological self portrait of of what and how was going on with her. Um, communications with this because she was really skeptical of it. So um, this is like a long lost manuscript that um, the president of the Parapsychology Foundation, Lizette Coley, she unearthed this in the family archives and, and so we've just published that. It's called um, Call Me Lucifer. So um, if anyone's interested in that stuff, it's on afterworldspress.com. We'll have to have you back and talk about all that stuff. Because, well, I knew we weren't going to get through everything tonight, so I, that's why I kind of zeroed in because well, yeah. get we were talking about the inch wide mile deep thing earlier, me and you. I'd rather go the mile deep instead of the inch. Yeah, anyways. Um, oh, and so, I'll also just say um, I have a, I, I'm an independent scholar, which means I'm, I'm doing this for more love than money. So I've got a Patreon account. So if anyone is interested in uh, supporting me with on Patreon, that's just, again, Patreon slash Gregory Shushan. And you can, you know, start at a dollar a month or whatever. And there's free books. And I do the historical NDE of the month that people get in their email and all kinds of um, cool stuff. So last question, the, the most difficult question of the night. You ready? Sure. What's your, what's your favorite breakfast? Favorite breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I don't know. I'm probably going to be, um, well, actually, no. I was about to be boring and say cereal, but it's actually a very New Mexico thing. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And there's blue corn pancakes with pinion nuts and real maple syrup. Ooh, sounds like something I have to try because that sounds delicious. Yeah, it's really good. Well, hey, I've, I thank you for blowing my mind several times tonight. Like I said, we'll, I'll bring you back. We'll talk about the publishing and all those. I, I, there's so much there as well. But. Great. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. And have a good evening. Or, well, I guess it's evening now over there, so I'll, I'll, I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Talk to you soon. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. And there we go. And, uh, yeah, wow. Yeah, it does sound good, doesn't it, Jim Downer? I, I'm excited, because that's something... I mean, normally, if he would have went cereal, I would have had to been asking follow-ups to that, and I don't like doing that. But, man, mm, sounds good. Yeah, Kat, very interesting tonight. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we went there. Um, and I definitely I definitely have to get him back on and talk about all that other stuff. Oh, man, it's just, that's what I get when I get good people. It's just remarkable. So be looking for him to come back around because, man, let me barely scratch the surface of what he's been into throughout his life. So, uh, yeah, so we're digging through January here. I hope everybody's staying warm and staying well. Uh, sending some love to our good friend WR250 as well. He's got a lot going on in his personal life. We're not going to divulge any details in any of that, but just uh, throw one up for him tonight. Or whenever you're listening to this, because he needs it. And uh, yeah, we'll take care of business. See you next week. It's the Mallard Report. Yeah, the Mallard Report. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. 
It'll be sooner than you think. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It was not bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 